This episode is brought to you by Water Wipes, the world's purest baby wipes. Plant-based and plastic-free with only two ingredients. Water Wipes gently cleans and helps protect sensitive skin and are proud sponsors of the Miracle Babies Foundation. Except to say you will get to the other side. Like I know it's really hard, but, you know, parry me parents and any parent of a kid with a difference like or an extra challenge, you know, you're so much tougher than you have to be. You have to be their advocate. Welcome to Parenthood, where each week we explore the lives of Aussie mums and dads and what's really going on behind closed doors. I'm your host, Leonia Kidanor, mum of two, business owner and relationship coach. Let's begin. Welcome to the show. Sam, welcome to the podcast. So good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Been great to meet you. So excited. We have so much to delve into. You're certainly a busy woman. Um, To those listening, I have Sam Squires here with me, who is an ambassador for the Miracle Babies Foundation, which is Australia's leading organization supporting premature and sick newborns, their families, and the hospitals that care for them. Sam is also an award-winning sports presenter and journalist for for Fox Sports News. She's a fierce advocate for women's sports and features featured prominently in the Matildos doco on Disney, which is amazing. Honestly, great work, girl. Um, She was also a FIFA Women's uh, World Cup Beyond Greatness Champion Ambassador and is the founder of Sports uh, Sport Tet. Am I saying it right, uh, Sam? Yes. Is that the right pronunciation? Good. (laughs) Which is a business that began as a platform to tell the stories of women in sport and quickly grew to consult with major sporting organisations on how to improve their women's games and with businesses on how they can better uh, support women in sport. So, again, another amazing initiative. Sam and her husband, Ben, are parents to Imogen and Al. Ivy was born at 32 weeks after suffering from severe pre-eclampsia while Al was born with a cleft lip and palate. Sam has recently become an ambassador for uh, Interplast, Mm -hmm. which performs surgeries on cleft children in developing countries. Again, another amazing, amazing initiative. Um, Sam's also written a children's book, Princesses Wear Sneakers, and Mm -hmm. has another book on the way in 2024. My goodness, I don't even know where to start (laughs) with all of that, but you are obviously doing such great work in the world. And tell us, Sam, where did the passion for women's sports stem from for you? Um, uh, Really organically, I think. I think growing up, I was always into sport. I I always loved sport. I always played it. I played rep. I just, yeah, just lived and breathed it. It was just who I was. Um, really organically, really. I think I was just a little kid who was always into sport. I was always passionate about it. I always played it, played every sport possible, played, um, you know, rep sport in multiple sports. Just, yeah, just lived and breathed it and always wanted to become a journalist. Um, and I think I found it really strange when I did finally crack into journalism and the media that Mm. women's sports wasn't taken seriously and I'd constantly be told things like well women don't like sport and you know women don't play sport and I just it just never made sense to me because I was a woman and I was always passionate about sport you know I, I knew that in AFL clubs 
yeah, around 50% were members, were women. You know, I'd go out to the games, the NRL games, and I'd see women there. And I, I have, I was really close growing up with my grandmother, and she is a mad sportswoman. She was, you know, in her 90s, and, you know, she just loved her AFL. She loved her tennis. She loved her golf. She would watch all of them um, on TV. And she'd even, she was very prim and proper, and she'd be at a ladies' lunch, and she would have no qualms asking them to put the football on in the background. Not the sound just so I can keep an eye on the score. So it just never made sense to me. I'm like, where on earth is this coming? You know, I'd be at the cafe and I always read the paper when we read papers, those, you know, when they were actually in that um, hard form in front of us. But, you know, I'd open up from the back to the front. So I remember being in a cafe and a man, you know, pointing that out to me and just going, oh, you never see a woman like, you know, opening up, you know, when reading the back from back to front mm-hmm. and, and I just kept thinking, where is this coming from? Of course, women love sport. Of course, mm-hmm. women play sport. Um, and just always had this really organic passion to, you know, get to the bottom of this and to change that landscape for the next generation because I knew it was false and I didn't know where it was driving from. And I think if you ask anyone, ever since I was in regional sport days as like a junior reporter, I was, um, or regional TV days as a junior reporter, I was always up on my little soapbox every day talking about women's sports. I used to, you know, sneak, yeah, try to get women's sports stories up as, as much as possible. And I ha- would have to like sneak around and, and lie, you know, I remember telling my boss that I was going to do this story on a rugby player but didn't tell him it was a female player um, and then doing the whole story on this female rugby player but I just mm. did it. By the time I'd shot it and everything, he was like, oh, we're going to have to run it now. Um, <laughs> Gosh. And, you know, and, and even like I knew in the middle of the week in regional TV was when they had like, you know, a lull in, in stories so, or I'd wait till like the sports editor or my chief of staff was away and then I'd pitch all these women's sports stories and, and go out and, and do them. So I used to have to sneak around and do as much as I can. And those were the early days and I just carried through when I got into Metro Media and, you know, when I worked at Sky and, and worked at Nine, used to always, as much as I could, try to get women's sports stories up because I had this mm-hmm. access to this mainstream media platform. So I just tried my best because I couldn't understand why no one was seeing what I would see. I remember a boss of mine said to me at nine, he was like, so you honestly think one day, Sam, we will be watching women play rugby league on the TV just like we do with the men in the NRL. Mm -hmm. And he was saying it like I was crazy. And I remember looking at him just going, Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. I, I do actually. And him just being thinking I was crazy, but I thought he was crazy because he couldn't see, you know, what I saw. And then, you know, fast forward now to 2023 and, you know, women are playing um, sport in the AFL for their own competition in the NRL, like the Matildas, where do we even start? Like, uh, you know, such an event that galvanized the whole of Australia like we've never, ever experienced before. And that was women doing that and women in sport. So, you know, 2023 for me, I think from fighting for so long, being called and treated like I was crazy woman mm. for so long, for seeing something that other people couldn't see, you know, it was such a validating year for me because I've had people all this year calling me up just going, oh, you know, you, you were onto it, like you knew. And I was like, but it, it didn't come from anywhere other than the fact that I love sport, the people around me were women and love sport and I just mm. couldn't understand why women wouldn't play competitive sport why we wouldn't have our own competition mm. um so yeah and sportet started you know way back when when i was 
working at Sky and, and then when I moved on to Channel 9, I was also writing articles on the side and I opinion pieces about women in sport or stories about female athletes and I really struggled. I had access to these mainstream media platforms but I really struggled to get these women's sports stories um, on these mainstream media platforms. So I started my own platform called Sportette and um, just so I had a platform to tell these stories and, you know, I started posting on their opinion pieces about women's sports issues, mm. profiles, anything. Um, and then, yeah, they just really grew and then had businesses and sports organisations contacting me saying, okay, we need your point of view. We want to be able to do this for female athletes. What do you think of this idea? And can you come on board and do this? So, yeah, it was um, really good. And then, I, you know, the whole landscape has changed so much now that, you know, I have access again to mainstream media platform, but mm. I don't, I don't have problems getting women's sports stories on at all, you know, like mm. that's, um, it's so easy to do now. I don't have to fight. I don't have to mm. convince anyone. I can just walk in and say, you know, I've got this great story. It's about mm. this female athlete and boom, they don't think anything different of it being female. So I know that seems so normal now, but it wasn't normal for the majority of, of my career in, in sports media. And it's so lovely now. So sportettes, yeah. It's a very different looking business to what it used to, which is a good thing because, you know, it, it started off being that platform, but now mainstream media is, is able to tell the stories. Don't get me wrong, we still have a long way to go. We're not yeah. telling enough as it is and we're not, you know, prioritising them like they should be, but we'll get there slowly but surely. But, yeah, it's definitely it's been a very validating 2023. You've been such a pioneer in this space. And I think like you'll be one of those people where you look back on your life and you're like, wow, like she made a different, you know, she made such an impact in such a in huge industry, like the sporting industry. And like to, you know, to, to have that level of satisfaction, to have seen it go from where you saw mm. it to sort of where it is today. I mean, you should be incredibly proud of, just of the impact me, that like, you've made and culturally. Oh, thank too. you. Yeah. There's been so many people that have made that impact if I could just mm, play a little yeah. bit of a part in being able to change that that landscape but I remember mm. when my when Imogen was born I wrote this article mm. basically talking about you know welcome to the wide world of women in sport and everything mm. I wanted her the world of sport that I wanted her to grow up in mm. um and it was really like this year I, I looked back on that story and I put it up on my Instagram because it was, I, I didn't think I would see so much change so soon. Mm. Um, but everything I said about the world that I wanted her to grow up, like I wanted her to think it was strange that I started Sportette. I wanted her to think mm. of the olden days when people thought it was strange if you were reading a paper back to front because mm. the landscape had changed so much that, you know, she's like, well, I don't understand why they thought women didn't mm. like sport. Like how could that yes. ever be a thing? So yeah. I wanted her to grow up in that world and it's it was so lovely because now she is, especially with the Matildas. And it's so funny because I even mentioned some of the names of the Matildas, you know, who I've known for a really long time and mm. done stories on for a really long time. And mm. when she was born, I, I named those Matildas, you know, Tameka Yallop and Katrina Gorey and um, Sam Kerr. And it was so nice because, you know, six years later, they were still in that setup, um, and they've been in it for over ten years. They're still in that setup, and they were part of this golden generation of Matildas who were changing the way we saw women's sports completely in this country. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was nice reflecting on that that article. Like, and even I find it difficult to think that that's what it was like. You know, even 
you know, five years ago, you know, so yeah. much has changed, but um, there's been a long people throughout the history of sport who have mm. pushed so hard for a long time to see the kind of change that we finally saw. Yeah, or this year, but have been seen for the last few years. Yeah, that that cultural shift. It's amazing when we look at the second, uh, like the generation, you know, of our children's age, age to your point. And it's amazing to think about, yeah, how the world will be so different for them, hopefully, from all of the change that we've made now. And I'd love to delve. Let's talk about your parenting experience because, um, mm-hmm. you know, I for both children, you know, funnily enough, both girls. So it's quite interesting <laughs> again that you're such an advocate for women in. And I'm sure, yeah, they'll very much look up to the work that you're doing um, out there. But, you know, what was your conceiving journey like the first time around? Did you always know you wanted to be a parent? Talk us through it. Yeah, I think um, like I was never one of those people that my whole purpose in life is is to be a mum, which is so funny now because there's nothing that I love more than being a mum and especially to one to my two little girls. Like, no, Joe, if I'd known what it was like to be a mum, I definitely I probably would have been my sole purpose, but I, I didn't grow up like that. And, um, you know, I was married to my husband for five years before we even started um, thinking about having kids. And I think we were talking about it last night, Ben and I, um, we we're just having a really good time. Like when we were like married, we just we just hit this really sweet spot where you know work was really great, life was really great. Um, we were just really enjoying life a lot. You know, we went on this epic trip just before Emmy um, was born in in 2016, and just had the time of our lives. Like one of those trips overseas where just everything fell into place, and it was just the best and. You know, um, I think someone said to us, oh, last trip before you have kids, but we didn't think that. We're like, no, 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 we'll probably fit in a few more. But we kind of got back and we were like, oh, I think we both were like, I think we're ready now. Like I think we're at a good spot where with work it's great, we can, life is great and our relationship is great that we can, let's do this. But, yeah, we um, we were definitely enjoying the life before and I think everyone's like that you know those couple of years right before you have a kid you know with your partner or your husband like we were just you know in that really great sweet spot it's always a lot of fun um Mm. and then yeah we were really lucky with conceiving we we did have one miscarriage early on um at the start and I I think that's when I really knew I wanted to become a mum because it was such an an early miscarriage but like I miscarried when I was at work and I didn't live that Mm. far I came home and I just remember feeling utterly devastated for like weeks afterwards. And I was like, how is it so early on? And this is, yeah, really devastating me. And I think that's when I really knew, oh, my gosh, more than anything in this world, this is, yeah, what I want for us and and for me. So, um, yeah, but we were really lucky. Like we conceived really, really easily. And I know that's something that, you know, I shouldn't say or not feel so comfortable to say. But when you hear the rest of our story, it's okay for me to say that. Mm. Um, but, yeah, conceiving both times with the girls was um, was really quick and really easy. But it was very clear early on that, you know, our pregnancy wasn't normal um, and going to plan at all, which it took Ben and I a long time to get our heads around. We we were super fit at that stage. Like I, before I conceived Emmy, I'd like just run two marathons in 10 months. We were super healthy, super fit. Ben, you know, is super fit as well and does Ironmans. And, mm. um, and I guess with health had never been a problem for us. It's something that we really valued. So we'd done everything right. We never 
smoked and drank in moderation, like mm-hmm. never done drugs. We're like, why, you know, something going wrong? So we knew early on that Emmy wasn't at the growth that she was meant to be. Then we found out my placenta hadn't really formed properly and wasn't operating properly, so the nutrients weren't getting to her. So she had, mm-hmm. you know, restricted growth. Um, and But we thought it was just going to get better because the mm-hmm. whole time they never want to stress you out. So they always tell you stuff so positively. You just mm-hmm. We just thought, yeah, it was going to be okay. And then one of our, I think it was at 26 weeks, they took us into like the bad news room and, um, and after one of our scans and sat us down and basically said like, you know, your placenta isn't operating properly. She's not growing at the rate that she should be. Um, you know, basically she could come in two weeks, she could come in four weeks, but it's 50-50 whether you're even going to get six weeks down the track from here. And Ben and I went for a walk after that and we and I was like, did you just think everything was okay? And he was like, I just thought they were just being cautious this whole time. Mm. And I was like, I don't think everything is going to be okay. So I had to cut down work to three days a week, um, which for me, it doesn't sound much, but it was for me at the time, like work was everything. I loved it. I was working at Channel 9 in Brisbane, you know. Mm. Uh, sportette was going really strongly. We were doing this Sportette Summit for um, women in sport and business. You know, I was halfway through planning that, um, but I had to cut it all back. We were at the hospital for scans and meeting specialists five days a week. Um, it was pretty full on. Uh, and her growth was just getting like slowing down completely. So we did think because we were so heavily monitored, we thought it would be a case of she would stop growing. We would then, you know, go in, take her out. We knew we'd probably end up in with a premature baby. We just didn't know how premature she was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one night something happened that no one really expected. Ben was in Wollongong because he was in working in Wollongong at the time and um, and I just started getting really severe pains, like stabbing pains and I was home alone and I didn't know what to do and it's your first child so you don't know. you ha- Your body is completely changing. Everything is so different. I had no idea what was normal third trimester pains and what wasn't. I had these similar pains two weeks beforehand and I was at work and I I emailed my obstetrician. I was like, Megan, Megan Kastner, Brisbane's best obstetrician ever. Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm just getting these stabbing pains. I'm, I'm sure they're probably normal third trimester pains. And she met, called me at work straight away and she was like, first of all, never email me. Always call me, Sam. <laughs> She's like, second of all, you need to go to hospital now. And I was like, I'm kind of at work. And she was like, you have to leave now. So I... I left um, work and went to hospital and they could see when these pains were coming, but um, my cervix was closed. Anyway, they ended up um, putting me on bed rest at home. I didn't. I went to work, but I promised them I'd sit down to read the news um, and, yeah, and then just carried on. And then they went away. So when these happened again, I thought, oh, they'll just go away like they did two weeks ago. Um, And then they just kept getting worse at like 2 o'clock in the morning and I ended up calling the hospital out because then I was sitting down. I was like, oh, actually, I can't feel her move. Um, I couldn't feel Amy move anymore. So I tried everything to get her to move that they tell you to. And then I um, I rang the hospital and they said, you need to get in straight away. So I called Ben at 2 o'clock in the morning. He was in New South Wales at the time, interstate. Um and I said, I'm just, you know, going to go to hospital. And I was so calm about it because we were always in hospital at that stage. We were always having scans and checks. I said, it's probably nothing. And he was like, well, how are you going to get there? And I said, oh, and I didn't think I could 
dry because these pains. And I was like, he's like, you need to call an ambulance. I was like, that's way too dramatic. I'll just call an Uber. So I called an Uber and um, I remember grabbing my keys and my wallet. And I remember looking at my sunglasses going, I'm going to be back before the sun gets up. Won't need my sunglasses. So um, probably a bit naive, which is probably good in a way because it kept me quite calm. And my poor Uber driver, um, when I waddled down with his pregnant belly at like two o'clock in the morning and he just looked at me, he was like, are you in labor? And I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what that is, which is get to me to the hospital. Um, so he yeah, got me to hospital and it was then that we realized that things were actually pretty, pretty bad. And within, um, and Megan was there straight away and my obstetrician and, and she was like, where's Ben? I'm like, he's in Wollongong. She was like, oh, I'm afraid you were going to say that. She goes, can we get him back? And, um, and I was like, so we were calling Ben trying to get him back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was two o'clock in the morning. Like you can't get back quickly from Wollongong to Brisbane. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, and then everything just started shutting down. And what had happened was, is I had a placental abruption. So my placenta had mm-hmm. broken away from my, my uterus. I was bleeding from inside my uterus Amy was in quite a bit of distress um, and then I had severe preeclampsia which um, and it was really sudden and really severe so like while I was sitting lying there uh, like all my vision went blurry because all the fluid was pulling um, on my brain and that's when they realized we need to get her out ASAP so they um, called Ben and they're like we can't wait we're just going to have to get her out now so and Ben had like he was at the fire station because he's a fire and he booked like the first flight. Um, he just got on the internet and just booked the first flight out and started making his way to Sydney to get that six o'clock flight. And yeah, and then well, I just had to get wheeled to um, uh, to do an emergency cesarean and then they just had to take her out straight away. So she went to NICU. I went straight to ICU because I didn't understand at the time that I was not in a good way as well. So, and what? So preeclampsia was starting to shut down my organs and um, and everything. So I went to ICU for three days and then Imi was in NICU for the next uh, almost eight weeks in the end. So, um, so yeah, and then that began our epic um, NICU journey, which because she was only 1.3 kilos. She was 32 weeks but 1.3 kilos and didn't have enough time to get the steroids um, into her, which gives that last little boost for for um the lungs um support so yeah she had like chronic lung disease she was on oxygen for the first five months she came home on home oxygen um but yeah she's a little a little battler and just battled through um yeah those those weeks in in NICU which you know some women are there for like yeah, some women, some families, yeah, I should say. Yeah. You know, they're there for, for three months, some four months, you know. So, oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, they were like the longest, longest weeks and we just yearned to be able to take a little girl home and yeah. have like a normal parenting experience. But in a way it was our first pregnancy. It was good that it was the first one because we didn't know mm-hmm. what it felt like to hold your baby straight after giving birth. Yeah. You know, I didn't see her for three days. Um, you know, Ben saw her before I did but didn't hold her before I did. Um, and yeah, and the moment I finally got wheeled in, they wheeled me in from ICU to the day before I left uh, ICU to go see her because that, that was their priority. They were like, we need to get you to see her. We need to get yeah. you together. So as soon as you're well enough, we'll wheel you in. Um, so they wheeled my bed into the NICU and um, at the Mother Mothers in Brisbane and it was a great hospital. 
Um, and lucky that I was in ICU. I wasn't separated from Amy. She was in the same hospital. And, mm. and then, yeah, and then I got to hold this little tiny little thing with all these. We were like both of us just had all these tubes and cords attached to us, but she's just this tiny little fragile thing with this big mm. face mask on. And, yeah, but she was beautiful. It was the most Did amazing you, experience. That, like, I feel like so... That were like what a journey, firstly, mm. and just on that. I mean, so many questions, but just as you were talking, then I literally got goosebumps when you said, you know, when I finally got to meet her after mm. you know those three days in ICU, ICU for yourself. So, mm. did you know once you'd given birth, you had a C-section? Were you aware of what was going on? Were you aware they were taking the baby away? That you had to be wheeled off? Or were you just out of it? What was? Oh, I was. I I think I remember saying to myself, if um, if Ben can't be here, like I, I don't want to be here. So I, it was probably like a good um, mechanism in the end because I was like, well, if we can't enjoy this moment, because you yeah. always talk about the moment you give birth is meant to be like the greatest moment ever. And I was like, yeah. well, this isn't, Ben's not here. I'm all alone. Yeah. Um, this isn't going to be that moment. And my OB, my obstetrician, Megan Kastner, like um, the best thing she could have said to me, which mm. still makes me so emotional thinking about it. She said to me that moment, she said, Sam, this isn't your moment. She said, this isn't your moment. Um, and she was right by my bed. She's like, I promise you, you're going to get your moment. Your moment doesn't have to be this one. You're going to get your moment when Ben's going to be here and that's going to be your moment. It was the best thing she probably could have said to me because it didn't matter that everyone says that moment when you see her for the first time. I kind of, and she said to me when, you know, they took her out, she said, Sam, have a quick look, but I couldn't raise my head. And I also was like, <laughs> I was choking on my vomit because I ended up being allergic to some of the, which we need on Danzatron, everyone knows it, that anti-nausea drug, I ended up being allergic to it. So they mm. gave me that drug and I just kept vomiting. But you can't move, so you choke on your vomit. super lovely. Mm. Um, but I just, I remember just seeing her being taken away. Um, but I remember just thinking that's not our moment. And when, you know, when they wheeled me in, you know, and Ben was by my side to see her for the first time. Like that was our moment. That was the moment mm. that, you know, I really got to see Imi for the first time and, mm. and have that beautiful moment. Didn't have to be, you know, that moment when she was, she was born because she was, you know, she was in distress as well. So they had to, there were no, I couldn't touch her or anything. There was no time for that. Like mm. I, I don't even, I didn't hear anything. I don't even know she was breathing at that moment. She was intubated to start with, so probably not. Um, yeah, and then she had her own, um, little journey at, at that moment as well. So, mm. yeah, but I think, yeah, I think it was good in a way that I'd tapped out mentally yeah. and I don't think I did. I remember them taking me to ICU and they're like, we'll take you to ICU. I'm like, why am I going to ICU? Mm. You know, I shouldn't be going to ICU. Um, and then, yeah, and even one of the nurses in ICU because I was like, can I go in the ward now? Like, I need to go in the ward. And she was like, I don't think you understand how sick you are. I'm like, mm. no. No, I don't. So I just didn't want to be here at all. Um, yeah. I just wanted to be on the ward with my baby. Um, yes. So, yeah, but she was like, I don't think you understand. Um, and I thought I'd just be there for, you know, one day and then mm. they were like overnight and then the next night I was like, can I go home? Like mm. I'll just go somewhere. But, um, but yeah, you know, and then, you know, suddenly I'm like, I had like my obstetrician, then I had like a neurologist, I had a renal specialist, um, I had a cardiologist, all these people are coming in asking me mm. all these questions. 
Um, and I just, I remember thinking, like, I, there's a car crash victim right next to me. Like, he needs ICU. I was like, I just had a baby. Like, yeah. that's all. I had no concept that my situation could have been as dangerous as it was. And Ben, I think when Ben came, because he got that first flight back to Sydney, so he arrived and went straight to the hospital and found ICU. And he, um, yeah, he asked all Megan all the questions, you know, I hadn't asked because I was still mm. a little bit in shock and, um, and yeah, and he was like, well, you know, if she hadn't gone to the hospital, when she did, if she had waited till the morning, yeah. um, what would have happened? And she was like, yeah, they both wouldn't be here. So wow. we were like, oh, okay. So I'm kind of glad serious. that. Yeah. So, um, which then I started to think, I was like, okay, this is, yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, it took me ages to process the whole thing. Like, because you do, you go from your situation and suddenly you've got a baby and Niku, so you're like straight into, you don't even worry about you, you're straight. And Mm. I hated when people ask me about about me. I'm like, I'm Mm. fine. And then I'd go there. So um, it was probably like not until Indy turn one that I I started to get a bit of PTSD and trying to go through everything. And and then I realised like, yeah, I probably need to, see someone about what happened I haven't really processed all of this so I saw and a couple of premier mums I saw were also seeing um a psychologist mm. to process what had happened and yeah it was the best thing I could have could have done I probably should have done it sooner but I didn't have time because you just go straight into like you're like you're a NICU mum you're a premier yep, mum right? yeah and concentrate yeah. on your baby not yes. a new, and I was just getting frustrated that I couldn't walk, that I was in ICU. Like I just mm. wanted to get out of there as as soon as as soon as possible and pretend that everything was okay. And it took me a while to realize that it's not, and it's yeah. not okay. And also, like a premi progression, every premi is different. Like people, mm. once you say you have a premi baby, people love to tell you about a friend of a friend who had a premi and everything was okay. Mm. But it, it, every premi is different. Like even our neighbours here have a, their son was born 32 weeks, but he was born like bigger than owl and they were out in two weeks, you know, and we, mm. you know, ours was 1.3 kilos yeah. and our little girl and, yeah, she was in there and in and out of hospital for, yeah, a number of months. We're briefly interrupting this episode to give a shout-out to our episode sponsor, Water Wipes. Water Wipes is the world's purest baby wipes, plant-based and plastic-free, with only two ingredients. Water Wipes gently cleans and helps protect sensitive skin and are proud sponsors of the Miracle Babies Foundation. Did you know Water Wipes first entered the market through hospitals and neonatal intensive care units? Becoming popular for their use on newborns and premature babies, they were the first wipes to launch pure baby wipes with minimal ingredients and the first wipes to be certified as microbiome friendly. What makes water wipes different? Their unique seven-step purification process means their water is able to reach more dirt and impurities. This provides a more effective clean without leaving a residue or exposing skin to potentially irritating ingredients. Other brands claim purity and yet have upwards of nine plus ingredients. But then there's water wipes, simply two ingredients and nothing else. In addition, their wipes are strong and durable while also being plant-based and plastic-free. It's no wonder that water wipes is widely recognized and appreciated by healthcare organizations and professionals worldwide. 
Water Wipes purely protects. At what point did you start feeling physically better? So, you know, we did three days in ICU. What happened after that for you and your physical health? Yeah, so I was, and then I went to the ward and I was on the ward for, for quite a while. Okay. I, I, that's the thing I used to always say as well. Like mm. my body crashed really quickly, but it recovered really quickly. And I put that down. You know, we had such, I was so fit and we mm. did have such a, a healthy, healthy lifestyle. Um, mm. It took quite a while for my vision to come back. I would still have like for weeks and weeks afterwards, like my, there was just a line in my vision. It was like, it's like you're watching TV and there's like an annoying reception where it's like this wavy, fuzzy line through your eyesight and that took quite a while to come back. But, yeah, I recovered. Um, I recovered really, really well, which which was good and I probably don't give my body enough, I, you know, I, I credit for bouncing back the way it did. So, And also it is that moment that you're like you just focus just on the next thing. I think it was more psychological psychologically like mm. you took me a while because you're just in the thick of it um and then you're doing all your therapies with your, with your premie as soon as they're out of the hospital because the journey premie journey doesn't end when you're out of hospital like mm. if you have a friend who's had a premie you know there's all the therapies and physio and everything else that you have to go through for us it was sleep studies for her oxygen to see if she could finally her lungs were strong enough to get off oxygen and mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's a lot going on, but that was the thing that also got me. was like, okay, it doesn't end as soon as you're out of hospital. As soon like, as you leave. Cause yeah, long, I thought that was you it. said, how long in the hospital was it before you were able to leave? Yeah, probably about seven, seven and a half weeks. And then we left and then, um, and then we were like the next week, we were straight back in the hospital for another sleep study for her oxygen to see you know, about her oxygen and a couple of other drugs that she was on, whether she mm. could handle those and mm. doing those studies. So, um, yeah, it's a, but as I said, like there are so many premier mums that are in there for like three or four months as well. Like it was, yeah, an epic kind of, yeah. And it's just like, the, yeah, the toughest journey I think been in that. Uh, I cannot even imagine. So for those seven weeks, was there a period of time in which you finally were, you were sort of going back home to and from hospital and yeah, like yeah. what did it look like? Yeah, so we were, our routine was we were, um, we just wake up in the morning and then we'd just go straight to the hospital. We'd try to get there like at um, before eight and then we'd sit there all day. Sometimes we'd be able to hold her if she was well enough. Um, uh, sometimes we couldn't, but very rarely. Like you always try to have a cuddle. So we were just one of us would have her on our chest um, and give her that kangaroo cuddle or a skin-to-skin contact. Mm-hmm. And then that was our day, just literally lying there with with her. Um, we'd go home because we were really lucky in Brisbane. We lived quite close to the hospital. Mm-hmm. It was only about 15 minutes away. So we'd go home for lunch, have lunch. Then we'd go back in the afternoon um, for an hour, like hour lunch, and then we'd go back. And then again, one of us would have a cuddle or we'd just sit there by her her. Um, her humidity crib and just look at our baby until like eight nine o'clock at night then we'd go home in the early days it was it was longer as as she got better you know and we would do things like um you know if we got to change her nappy for the day like that was like the most glorious moment of our day because that was the only thing that made us 
feel like a parent that day. The only thing we could do for her as a parent other than you can't even you can't even really touch them like you can't stroke them you can only like put your hand on them but not for too long um so yeah if we could change her nappy and i'd never changed a nappy before and the first nappy i changed ever was this tiny little 1.3 kilogram thing with cords going everywhere and in through like the humidity crib as well so you're in through just little pockets in in the little humidity crib and changing this this nappy, which, yeah, that's pretty complicated nappy to change, um, which are all too big for them because they're so tiny. Mm. So, um, but, yeah, that was the only thing that made us feel like like a parent that day. And then, on with, like, we could, because um, I was just expressing all the time, so I just mm. sit there, look at my baby, express milk yeah. um, to feed her. And, yeah, so when we started, when she was in NICU and starting to breastfeed or in special care, mm. I think it was at special care we started it, um, when she got promoted to special care, we, yeah, we'd start to do little breastfeeds, but it took a lot of energy for them to suck and they need that, they need all the energy they can to grow. So okay. you couldn't do too much of that and then you just put it back in. So yeah, our days were around her nappy changes. We'd be so upset if we get there a little late in the morning and a nurse who didn't know us had changed a nappy, we'd be like, no, that's our job. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we we never complained about a nappy change, I think, mm. for the whole two pregnancies because uh, two, two of our girls because we just knew how special doing that was and we weren't going to take something as simple as changing a nappy for granted. It's amazing. Like puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? Mm. Like, you know, you hear something like that and you're like, wow, like, yeah, those those smelly nappies, you know, when yeah. the rest of us are usually Never like, oh, about you it. could do it. Now yeah. I'm like, wow, like you're right. I mean, what Never a gift. It's a healthy it. child that's able to, you know, yeah. to use the nappy, et cetera. So where was, because I'm just listening to that and I'm just like, that. that is such a mind field of emotions, of everything, of I'm sure you felt elements, you're exhausted, you would be frustrated, mm-hmm. you want to be home with your baby, you want to cuddle your baby, you can't. Was we just want to pick up our baby. We had to right? ask for permission to pick yes, up your baby. Like yes, that seems like so the basic, the, basic, right, the human, you I know, I see other normal, people have, we had yeah. friends that had babies at the same time and they could just mm. pick up their baby ever. Like yeah. I'm like, I have to ask for permission to pick up my right? baby. Like, yeah. good reason but it's a different experience it's a very different experience Mm. i'm sure like was there a complicated emotions like guilt and other things in there like where was your head at during that time oh i think i think during that time i was just so focused on on emmy um it wasn't probably wasn't until Elle was born that i really like you do get a lot of mum guilt with being a preemie mum like you um, you know, because it's it's your body, it's your body that has to build her and develop her and grow her. And I always felt like I didn't do my job properly by not getting her to full term. And I've had to readjust the way I think about my body because um, I loved my body. Like I can push my body so hard. It ran marathons. It like stayed up late and did sported. It like, you know, when it, my brain didn't want to work and I was live on air, I could make my brain work. You know, I'd do deals with it. I'm like, just keep going. I know you're tired. You know, I really pushed it and I felt like I had this good relationship with my body. And then I'm like, but all I wanted you to do was grow my baby. And I felt like you didn't do it. And I had to change my the way I thought about my body for a long time going, well, hang on, like maybe my body did do a good job. You know, maybe, you know, if my body had been slack, then 
you know, the outcome would have been a lot worse. You know, Amy wouldn't have survived or I wouldn't have survived or something like that. So I had to change. It took me a long time to think about that. I mm. I always felt like my body failed me when I really probably wanted it to um, to do its job the best in that moment. I, I don't care about anything else you've ever done for me, body. Just mm. get my girls through their pregnancies. Um, so, yeah, you do struggle with that, thinking that, you know, that's your job. What did I do? How did I do that? Did I fail, uh, you know, at the first at the first turn of being a mum by not getting you full term? So, mm-hmm. and then when Elle's pregnancy, you know, being having a cleft lip and cleft palate, again, I just, I felt that I was already dealing with guilt and then I just mm-hmm. felt that guilt tenfold at that point thinking, you know, I just, both my girls now, I haven't done my job as a mum, like to grow them. And I remember thinking, with Emmy and especially with Elle as well, just going, okay, well, if, you know, I didn't do, you know, and it's such unhealthy language and it was real, but I know a lot of women out there would probably relate to that language where I was like, well, if I didn't do my job while you were in the, I, I remember just saying to Emmy in the humidity crib, like, I promise, like, I'm going to be the world's best mum when you get out of here, like, you know, I'll do my job like the best you've ever experienced i'll be the best mom for both you girls mm. um so yeah i remember making that promise to them and they were little like i'm sorry that you know you've had a rough start in life and you've had to be really strong but um and i'm sorry that you know you're not just sucking on a boob and pooping and sleeping you know you're going through a whole lot other challenges but um but i promise i'll make up to you when we're on the other side Mm, yeah it's so beautiful to hear um the clef um palette so could you talk to us a little bit about Mm. that um and more so also at what point did you realize that that was going to eventuate like what was the story yeah around that yeah it was really weird because it was it took me a while to be brave enough to go again with the pregnancy Mm. but I really wanted to have another child um and again we got into the position where we thought we'd move back to New South Wales to be closer to family and I thought we're in a position now where we can we can do that and I um yeah so we fell pregnant and it was the first 20 because it was a 20 week scan that I knew something wasn't you know going to plan with Amy so I was really like anxious for those first 20 weeks um building up and I remember the first scan I went for at eight weeks, like I just burst into tears, like I was getting triggers all over the place. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, the 20-week scan was was really, you know, I cried in the morning, like I was terrified. And I remember like they were doing all the measurements and they were like, yep, this is good, everything's looking great, yep, placenta's working, all good. Um, the Doppler, bloody Doppler. Anyway, um, and, and they were like, oh, okay, you can go empty your bladder in the toilet. Um, and then we're done. I was like, oh, good. So when and you know, go to the toilet. And then I came back in. I remember being on the toilet going, it's okay. Like, I didn't have to be scared. Like, it's okay. Everything's okay. Like, she's a great size. Everything's, like, normal. It's fine. Um, and then I came out of the toilet and she was like, I just want to get one more image of the face before you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was when she was like, oh, I think your daughter has um, a cleft. And, you know, I knew what clefts were, but I'd, I don't think Ben knew what what clefts were and but she wouldn't tell us like the severity you don't know until they're born if it's also cleft lip and cleft palate because the palate's really hard to see and then yeah just it was just a whirlwind then like I think we just really wanted after having so many trips to the hospital and so many specialists we just wanted a pregnancy where we didn't have specialists or hospital trips and then suddenly they were like right you're gonna 
I'm going to see the professor of fetal medicine at um, at Randwick, and then we had to meet with a cleft team at Randwick, and who are amazing, like absolutely amazing, and they just prepare you so well for what's ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, our, our pretty soon our hopes we realised our hopes of just having a straightforward pregnancy or you know baby when we're not going to be the case and yeah and then they tell you at Sydney Kids are like oh you're with us for the next 20 years because in a way we thought oh maybe it's just the first few surgeries and then you're done yeah. but yeah. it is an ongoing process like Elle's had three surgeries in three years um and she's still got a few more to go but you don't know how many they have because every baby develops differently um but yeah we had to let go of those hopes of having yeah something with you know like uh, you know, I've had friends that, you know, they only have like three scans their whole pregnancy. I'm like, what's that like? Mm-hmm. And I remember being in a, one of the scans and seeing a girl, you know, they're so excited because they're getting a scan to see, you know, what their baby, they'll get a photo of their baby. You know what I mean? Like I was like, oh, I just wish how nice that would be that your only concern going in for a scan is, you know, we're not even a concern. Your only yeah. thought mm-hmm. is that, oh, cool, we'll get like a picture of our baby today and we'll get to see our baby. Whereas it was such a different process for us. We held on to so much um yeah and I think as well like from the NICU experience it wasn't just our experience it was being around so many babies I remember Ben saying to me he's like I had no idea that so many things could happen to babies like you hear of the really straightforward pregnancies and then you're in NICU and every baby in there has a different story a different complication a different challenge and you just don't even think that all that could happen when you're pregnant but so for us it was we were you know, people think how unlucky people are, like when things go not according to plan, but we had this big appreciation. We're like, well, for things to go perfectly to plan, like that is rare in itself. So we had that kind of mentality. But, yeah, I think I was really, yeah, Elle's pregnancy I found really difficult. Um, But because, you know, I had that feeling of guilt that I hadn't done the job properly. But, um, and also something so many complications and you don't know till she's born like it's and then when they they cleft they're like oh this can be linked to like 40 different syndromes and you're like well what are these syndromes they're like well there's up to like 40 of them and then they're like can you tell me and they're like well no um we won't know till she's born so you're kind of holding on to a lot in that sense um but then the moment she was born and the moment she came out of me and they put her on my chest was the most healing moment and the most beautiful moment when I just knew everything was going to be okay because she was here. Like I, mm. you know, she she arrived safely. She was beautiful. Like, and I just knew I was going to protect her um, for the rest of my life. And I knew I was just going to give her the greatest life. But yeah, I just, with all the concerns and the pregnancy, finding it so challenging, that I still can feel it, that, that fierce feeling when they, you know, she's finally here and they lift her up and then they put her on my chest and yeah it was just the most beautiful healing moment for me that I knew everything was going to be okay yeah I feel like often the anticipation of it all Mm. and the uncertainty and the risks that are being told to you and all of that when you can do nothing about it other than continue to grow this beautiful human it makes sense that finally when you can see this beautiful human and did you um uh, go did um Al go to full term or what was her uh yeah she um uh she she got to 37 weeks so We're at 36 and, mm. yeah, I remember going, 
because it was born March 2020, where we all know what happened in March 2020 as well. My obstetrician in Wollongong, because I mm. couldn't have Megan. We actually went back to Brisbane to see Megan when we were thinking mm. about having a baby because we loved her so much. Yeah. Um, Megan Kastner, if you're in Brisbane, she's the best OB. Um, and she, we went and saw her. And, and then, yeah, my OB in, in Wollongong, she went for a conference in the US like at the end of February and then okay. she got locked out of the country. And so she was, um, yeah, so she... So we were phoning them going, well, what's going to happen? We knew I couldn't go to full term because of Imi's cesarean um, and what happened with Imi. Um, so we knew we'd have to take her out early mm. and then everything was shutting down, like, you know, people were wearing masks, all of that. Um, and I went into hospital and my blood pressure just, like, spiked. And Ben and I were sitting there and Ben goes, we're not getting out of here today, are we? Um, and I was like, oh, I don't know. So, yeah, they kept, um, but they gave us, the steroid shots to help Elle's lungs just develop a little bit more before um, they took her out. And then, yeah, we had a great obstetrician, um, Pip Gale, who um, was our obstetrician's partner and mm-hmm. and she was great. She was like, look, do you just want to take her out on Wednesday? We're like, yes, just take her out. We were just getting too scared with what if, if um, yeah, if I was getting to danger zone with preeclampsia and going full term and then I thought, oh, I don't want another situation. I don't want an ambulance. I don't want um, to go to emergency or anything. I just, you know, want to do this as straightforward. So, yeah, we just mm. had the two shots of um, – and they did let us out that day on that Monday, but we went back on the Wednesday and then had her on the Wednesday. But every, it was bizarre because it was – I think the day that Elle was born were the days that they stopped flying in and out and grounded all the planes. So it was right at that peak. I remember being in the hospital holding this baby just going – what is happening to the world right now? Mm-hmm. So it was a real interesting time to um, to have a baby. And yeah. hospitals were locked down as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Amy couldn't come in and see her at all. So, yeah, we were just, yeah. It was, it, we had all of that going on yeah. at the same time. But yes. she did, um, she just got to full term, which was, yeah. and she was 2.7, which to me felt like the biggest baby in the world yeah. compared to 1.3. But, um, yes. and she is just the most beautiful, loving, mm. um, gorgeous little, little girl. And she was a mm. gorgeous baby. So, yeah. and that's it. Like, it, and even Ben said, you know, we're kind of sad that the world shut down. He was like, I want to show Elle's only like this for a few months. You know, she only has her visible cleft for a few months. He says, I want to show her off. Like, I want the world to see her the way she is and the way she was born, you know. And, you know, we really grew to love her little cleft. It was such a part of her and such a beautiful part of her as well. And there's nothing wrong with your kid and your baby looking different from the ones on the Huggies ads. That's right. And for those listening who perhaps don't know what a cleft looks like, you know, what did Elle look like? What was a little bit, I guess, different about her features? So basically you all, like in, an embryo always, well, you know, when you're forming a baby, when they're forming, both sides of the face kind of come together and form at the nose and the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, Elle's, the two sides of her face didn't quite reach. the, So she had a gap between her lips and her palate, so her gums going right back to her mouth um, was a big gap, like like a long river basically, and then the, the two sides of the lips just don't meet together. Um, 
And yeah, so that you do that first surgery to put the lip back together and the nose back together at three months. Yeah. And then you do the palate um, between 10 and 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just different things along the way. She'll have a bone graft in her mouth when her adult teeth start to come through. Um, they'll probably, you got to wait till the nose properly repairs, uh, probably grows before you do the nose surgery and, okay. and things like that. So, but okay. it affects the way they eat, affects the way they um, they they breathe. You know, their ears as well are affected. So she's had two sets of grommets in already. Okay. Um, there's a lot connected. And then when it affects the ears, it affects the speech. So you do speech therapies and things like that. So it's yeah. it's all connected. But, um, but yeah, she's, She's doing well. And we've gone almost, you know, we will go a year before we'll go to the hospital again, which is like, I think we don't have to do the hospital till February, so it's almost a year, yeah. which is amazing. It's the longest time we haven't been in a hospital for like six years. So we're kind of, yeah, we're getting um, through the really difficult kind of period now mm, and now it's amazing the work that you're doing as an ambassador to you know um you mentioned interplast as well mm. that's organization that supports um, pe- pe- um children who have um who require cleft surgeries could you tell us a little bit yeah about that? yeah i'm really really kind of proud to be part of you know miracle babies and interplast because i feel like it's both i was you know i've been an ambassador for miracle babies since emmy was born um but it feels quite fitting now i've just come on board with interplast and you know they do work they go into developing countries um to do surgeries life-changing surgeries on um babies with cleft lips and cleft palates in developing countries that don't have access to these kind of surgeries even in australia they have a limited number of surgeons who are able and licensed to do cleft surgeries because they just don't want someone who hasn't done this surgery you know for two years to go on a baby's face and start not hacking away but you know they want those skills to be refined Um, and we have such access to great surgeons and medical systems in Australia and it's not the case for developing nations so they go into you know developing nations and do those surgeries they also do um, they help a lot of fire victims and burns victims as well for their skin grafts and yeah, just such an incredible, Amazing incredible work, work that what they do. And it, yeah, I'm really proud to be part of that. I'm proud to be part of Miracle Babies as well because they provide such incredible support mm-hmm. to preemie mums because, you know, a lot of mums and well, preemie parents, I should say, like they, you know, they don't know the world that they're about to step into. They don't know what's happening and a lot of the time haven't had any time to prepare. So Miracle Baby supports those parents. They provide um, such great information. Remember the first thing Ben brought back from NICU because I was in ICU was, you know, the this book from Miracle Babies, which is basically a glossary of all the medical terms you could hear for, you could hear about over, you know, your NICU journey um, as well. And, yeah, they provide and they also, you know, they campaign for um uh for different changes for for women and premier women and also and i'll talk about that in a sec but also um you know and also fundraise for for research and um and work with hospitals and and everything to better support um premier families and i mentioned the the campaign that miracle babies is doing because one of their biggest campaigns at the moment is trying to extend maternity leave for preemie parents. So if you've had a baby who's premature or had extra challenges and you've been in hospital, you know, a lot of the time women are, are in hospital for the length of their maternity leave. Um, you know, I at the time 
you know, the maternity leave I received um, only six weeks from Channel 9, that was all taken up the time that was that I was in there. Some women as well didn't get maternity leave from um, their works. They only got it from the government and, you know, and at a lot of that time they're using up all their maternity leave and they don't even, they've used that all up and they have to go back to work and um, they haven't even got their baby home from hospital. So Miracle Babies is trying to campaign to say, well, if you do have your baby in hospital for a, for an extended period, then you should be able to get that added to the end of your maternity leave. Like it's a simple no-brainer, I think. I, I don't think there's one parent in the world, whether they've had a challenge um, or whether they've had a straightforward pregnancy, would would disagree that that should be a given. And I remember when we were in, in NICU, um, there was one lady in there it still breaks my heart to think you know harrison's mom you know maybe she had to go back to work um because she'd run out of of maternity leave and the boy was only 25 he was a 25 weeker so he was in there for the long haul for over for over three months um he has cp as as well there's one in one in four um premie babies ends up developing cerebral palsy as well so that's like there's a lot of physio there's a lot of therapies and things like that that you undergo as well um you know she, she had all that journey ahead of her and you know her maternity leave had run out and a little boy wasn't even home at that stage and my heart just absolutely broke for her and if there's one way that you know you could make the system fairer and easier or mums who and parents um i keep saying mums but dads included and and you know same-sex partners as well who would go through that uh, premier journey as well but you know if it can make it just a little bit easier on them by extending that maternity leave out so they aren't you know left with this just imp- impossible choice where they have to leave their baby in hospital and go back to work then yeah it's just such an incredible cause i think that miracle babies is is pushing for at the moment yeah it's, uh, it's kind of fitting my two daughters you know being a part of these two organizations and i can't wait for them to be a little older and know about these organisations and, you know, to also, you know, they also will be proud of their difference, which they absolutely are. My eldest said to my husband a couple of weeks ago, she was like, Daddy, you know, if I'm a premie and Elle's a clefty, what are you? <laughs> he was like, well, I'm, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I'm just... I, I think it just said I'm a ranger. Um, yeah. I'm an so you know, they're growing up proud of their difference. Yes. Like they had to, Kimmy had to do a show and tell at kindergarten, and you know, she brought in a picture of her when she was a premie and told them all about her premie journey. And you know, and I want Elle, you know, to grow up to be proud of of her difference and her cleft. It's not something to be ashamed of. You know, yes. it's not something. It might look different to other babies' photos, but it, mm. it certainly isn't you know, something to be proud of. She had to be stronger. She had to be fiercer. She had to be tougher than a lot of babies. And she showed such bravery and strength and courage from a really early age. And that's something that I want her to grow up and be be proud of and be proud of her difference. Yeah, I love it. Doing such great work with two fantastic organisations. And, I, you know, I'm curious for those parents out there who might be facing a similar outlook as what you faced or, you know, from a premie birth um, potentially to, you know, even a sick newborn or everything in between, right? There's so much that is out of our control. When you look back at your journey, what advice would you give to those parents who might be sitting in it right now? Mm, good question. Um I would say be 
if it's like a cleft journey, I I notice a lot of parents, you know, they hide their baby away or they don't take any photos or don't put on any social media until they're three months. Like, and I I know why they're doing it, you know, but I, I would just say to them, be proud of your kids' difference, you know teach them about their journey, tell them how strong and brave they've had to be from a really early age. You know, Imi went through a hard situation just recently at um, Little Athletics and I remember just telling her, like, you know, you're a premier, Imi, you were born strong, you know, you show that strength now. Um, And she was like, yes, okay. Um, And I'll be telling Elle the same as well. You know, I want her to be proud of her difference and Imi to be proud of, the challenges that she's had as well um, like take photos take as many photos as you can like I took so many photos and videos of Elle's cleft and I feel like it's not enough like I just want to take more because I, w- I don't have it anymore I can't I want to remember it. that's who she was and there's nothing to be ashamed about that you know if it doesn't look like it does on a particular you know baby commercial then you know that baby commercial is missing out you know there's so much more difference there is than than normal in the world and you know a difference is a superpower as well so I would say celebrate your kids difference teach them about their journeys um, but if you're in the thick of it just there's nothing you can say to, except to say you will get to the other side like I know it's really hard but you know preemie parents um and pr- any parent of a kid with a difference like or an extra challenge you know you you're so much tougher than you have to be you have to be their advocate just know how tough you are know how strong you're being um and if you're hearing a lot of outside no noise to say different or if people quite don't understand then just shut that noise off and concentrate on your baby but just know how strong you know the parents with kids who have extra challenges have to be and that's something that you should be really proud of at the moment. You're doing a great job. You're really doing a great job. So well said. It's been an absolute blast having you on, Sam. I feel like I I could speak to you for days. but (laughs) but It's so easy to talk to, Leonie. So easy. Thank you. No, for those uh, listening, how could they find out more about you? Um, I always welcome, like if you're in the middle of a cleft journey at the moment, if you've just got your diagnosis, I know how hard that can be Um, and I always welcome people to reach out um, on Instagram or um, I'm a bit harder to find on Facebook if you find on Facebook. Um, But, yeah, on Instagram, always on Instagram, like send me a message there or send me a message through Sportet. Um, But, yeah, I always welcome, yeah, if you're going through a because Premier parents and other cleft parents, you know, they got me through, you know, those difficult journeys. And I think that's why I chose to be, you know, outward on social media because mm-hmm. I wanted to be pr- – I, I am proud of my daughters and, you know, I wanted to show them off. And also I I struggled to find myself in anyone else when I really needed to find myself in someone else's story somehow to tell me it's going to be okay. So I think after I had the girls, I was like, well, you know, I want other parents to see this and I want them to see themselves in me and know that it's it's going to be okay um, and your cliff journey or your premier journey is going to be okay as, um, as well. So, you know, I think that's why I was um, – I have the girls on social media because I'm super proud of them, but also I, I want other parents to be able to find themselves and know that they're not alone because especially with cleft journeys, it was hard to find that many cleft parents because a lot of them 
hide their kids away. I don't understand it. But um, yeah. well, I do. I just, I want the world. I always say as well, like the, I don't want those parents to change, but I want the world to be able to change for those parents because it's the world that's made them feel like they can't show their baby until they're three months and had that first surgery. And, you know, if the world could just see difference in the most beautiful light that it should be seen in, then, yeah, it would be a much better place. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I just I didn't want them to feel lonely. I wanted mean, them to find themselves in our story somewhere. So, yeah. yeah. I love that. I'll pop your details in the episode notes as well, your Instagram handle, so people can find you. Thank you Wonderful. so much again, Sam. Thanks, Leonie. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a rating or review, and share it with your friends. Want to contribute to the conversation? Hit us up on Instagram at Parenthood Pod and join our Facebook group. Until next time. Thanks for listening. The Parenthood Podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we produce on, the land of the Wawandri people. We pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging.